Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, and this evening we'll be picking up in uh, verse 7. I'm actually going to read verses 3 through 10, however. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your word. And we ask, Lord, even as you have spoken through its reading, now would you speak to us through its preaching. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Back in the year 2018, Uh, Hurricane Florence, I don't know if you remember, made a direct hit on North and South Carolina. We were living in Clover at the time, and and one of the things that I remember about that storm was that there was this this live feed on the internet out at the the frying pan tower about 30 miles off the coast of North Carolina. And this live feed in, in the very center of the frame was this American flag, and the feed kind of captured this American flag from the beginning of the storm to the end of the storm. And I remember looking at that flag after the wind you know, had, had gotten up and, and had kind of stayed around 100 miles an hour for some extended period of time. And I remember just marveling, particularly at, at its resilience. You know, I, I know, yes, just, it was just a flag, but in the middle of 100 mile an hour winds and rain that was being blown 100 mile an hour by those winds and 30 foot seas in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of a hurricane, here was this flag doing what flags are supposed to do, right? Torn and tattered, but still just there blowing in the wind, That's one of those images, I think, that's kind of just branded into my mind, kind of beside the word resilience, which I think is kind of also a word that comes to mind when we read the blessing that Paul gives in verses 3 through 14. If you remember from our our last sermon and kind of the setting of the book, Paul uh, mentions several times in the book that he's in prison, and he's in prison unable to pastor his churches in person. And so he's writing letters to them, trying to pastor them through letters. And in the midst of that suffering, he writes what is one of the most richest blessings 
in the entirety of the New Testament. Like the dude is blessing God in the middle of suffering that would cripple and paralyze most of us. And not only is he just suffering, he's suffering for the sake of the gospel. And he's praising the very God for whom he's suffering. Which I think is instructive. I think it's a, a really a living proof that resilience can be a part of the Christian life, that faithfulness in the midst of very bad and very difficult circumstances can be a part of the Christian life, right? That stability can be a part of the Christian life. But, but how, right? How do we access that Christian resilience? How do we access that sort of stability? That's kind of the question we asked last time as we looked at verses three through six, but it's a question really that's kind of worth answering throughout the entirety of the, uh, the whole blessing, right? How do we as Christians find resilience? In other words, does this blessing have anything to teach us whatsoever about how to live this life, this Christian life faithfully in the midst of circumstances that change constantly and all the time, right? How do we find stability when things are kind of just in this endless cycle of kind of good times to bad times, or maybe for some of us, just bad times to worse times? You know, does the Bible really have anything to teach us about how to live without being tossed to and fro with every sort of catastrophe that comes to pass? How do we have Christian resilience? Well, I think the only answer to that question is, is this, and it's found here in verses 3 through 14. It's, it's the, the, the answer to that question is, is that we must interpret our lives through the lens of Scripture, right? That we must augment the reality of what is going on around us in our lives with the theology of the Bible, Right, the, this, these blessings, these spiritual blessings that are ours in the heavenly places, they're not just here stated on the page just to make us aware of them. They're meant to be used in the Christian life and I think particularly used in seasons of suffering. And so I think this passage gets at uh, theology that when it's used, not just when it's known, but when it's used correctly, changes how we respond to difficulty. <laughs> Verse 7 begins by really stating that in Christ we have redemption. Now, redemption really seems like an easy enough term that most of us have heard, you know, several dozens of times in church and in Sunday school and in books and so on and so forth. But it's really such a term that we've become, we've become so accustomed to it that we probably very easily brush over the significance of it. So what really, what really is it? Well, first, Paul points us to its source. We know that the source of our redemption is the grace of God. Redemption is something that I receive from God, not, uh, not something that I have earned. It's, it's something that he has decided to give to me. It's not something that I deserve, but something that's freely given. And what is it that, that God has freely given me? Well, he has pardoned my sin. He's given me forgiveness. He's pardoned my sin. He's, you know, I've sinned against him by breaking his law. As we read this morning in Ephesians or uh, Exodus chapter 20, I've, 
I have, I have done all of those sins. I have coveted, I have stolen, I have cheated, I have cursed him, I have lied, I have worshiped the creature rather than the creator. I have sinned, right? It's a reality. Every day, multiple times a day, for all of my years, I have spent my life sinning against God. And as a result, what sin deserves is God's wrath and punishment. But instead of giving me the wrath and punishment that my sin deserves, God has forgiven me. You say, why? You know, what, why would God do that? Well, the answer is here in verse six. Because of the blood of Christ. You see, Forgiveness happens not because our sin and its consequences just kind of evaporate into the air, right? My sin and its consequences, the wrath that it deserves, it doesn't just disappear. It doesn't just magically go away. The fact that, that sin requires blood is taught from the, in the Bible from the beginning to the very end, right? Sin requires blood and that doesn't change, But forgiveness happens because Christ interposes his blood on my behalf. Sin has consequences and those consequences, they don't just go away. They don't just disappear. They have to be bought. They have to be purchased. It's like like debt, right? Debt doesn't just go away, right? Debt doesn't just go away if you die. If, If you die and you have a bunch of debt, someone has to pay it, whether it be your estate or whether it be your family or whether it be the bank takes your property or whatever you have borrowed against that debt and sells it for themselves. The debt itself doesn't go away. The same with sin. It doesn't just evaporate. It doesn't just disappear. Someone has to pay either my blood or either Christ's blood. And for God's people, it's the Lord Jesus's blood. Redemption has happened upon the cross when the blood of Christ was graciously used to credit uh, to my sin debt. Right? The blood of Christ was given that my sin debt might be forgiven. Right? Redemption, what does it mean? It's the blood of Christ severing the demands of sin upon God's people. Redemption is Christ freeing you from slavery to sin. Redemption was a term that was used exactly in that way in this particular culture. Right? It referred to people who had either been kidnapped or, he, or, or people who had been made slaves and, and when someone came and, and paid Uh, their ransom price, they were set free from that captivity. This is what God has done for us in Christ. This is what redemption is. This is what Christian redemption is. Just as God freed his people in Exodus chapter six from slavery under Pharaoh, God has freed his people in Christ from the slavery of their sin. This is the gospel. And because of Christ's work of redemption, we have the license to live in the freedom of that forgiveness. Right? If Christ has purchased our sin and purchased our freedom, then we are no longer bound 
to that sin. We're no longer bound by its demands. We're no longer attached to it. We no longer have obligations to fulfill because of it. If you are in Christ, you're no longer a slave to your sin. You've been redeemed. You've been set free. You have freedom. You no longer have debts to pay. You no longer have a wicked taskmaster. You've been given a license to live in the freedom of forgiveness. But honestly, going back to kind of having stability in the midst of the Christian life, a lot of, the, a lot of times, one of the reasons we don't have that stability and we don't have that faithfulness amidst difficult circumstances is because we, rather than living in the freedom of our forgiveness, we instead submit ourselves, resubmit ourselves to that wicked taskmaster that is our sin. And I think one of the easiest and most prominent ways that we do that is by living in guilt and shame. All right, what's the first thing that you think about when you wake up? And what's the last thing you think about before you go to bed? All right, what occupies your mind as you go through your day, uh, hour after hour? What's the reason that we don't pray? What's the reason why we don't volunteer to serve in the church? Are we afraid to pray? Are we afraid to serve in the church? Are, is it because we feel like we aren't good enough? Is it because we feel like we've done too many bad things? Is it, is it because we feel like we were too bad a person and so therefore that disqualifies us from all of those Blessings, specifically the blessing of living in the freedom of forgiveness. That, my friend, is guilt and shame. That's not living in the freedom of forgiveness that God has given to us in Christ. And so my, my application of what Christ has accomplished for us in our redemption is don't commit the theological error of thinking that your shame will set you free from your sin or somehow that it will make you feel better about it or that somehow it will atone for your wrongdoing. Christ has already done that. Right? Christ's blood has already been spilt upon the ground that we might be forgiven and that we might live in that freedom. And so live your life in the freedom from your sin that the blood of Christ has bought. And take your thoughts captive to Christ. Don't become captive to, captive to the thoughts of your sin. As Christ has freed you from it. And so we don't have to be consumed by it. And shame and, and guilt and kind of being captivated by our past. You know, those things... Really, the sin of our past has the potential to leech upon the confidence that is ours in Christ. Confidence really is the very thing that we ought to have because of what God has made known to us, which is where Paul kind of transitions into verses 8 and 9. Right, God has not only by his grace given us redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins, but He's also in and by his lavish, his overflowing generosity given us wisdom and insight. But particularly, what kind of wisdom and insight are we talking about here? Well, it's wisdom and insight, as Paul goes on, making known the mystery of his will. God has given us 
wisdom and insight, he has revealed the mystery of his will. And the Bible, a mystery is something that was once hidden but has now been made known. And, and what is really the mystery that has now been revealed, right? What is Paul emphasizing here? And what has not only just been revealed, but as we go on into verse 9, what has been revealed on purpose? What has been delightfully revealed? What has been re- revealed according to God's good purpose, his good pleasure, as some, some translations kind of translate the first part of verse 9? Well, Paul's talking about wisdom and insight that God has given to us, revealing, revealing what God willed, what he wanted, what God brought about. It's the redemption of his people in Christ. Right, it's the, the, the truth that God the Father and God the Son set out and God the Holy Spirit set out to save for themselves a people. And those redemptive purposes and those redemptive plans find their fulfillment in Christ. He set them, God set them forth in Christ. Christ is the one who accomplishes redemption by his blood. It's a very basic statement what Paul is really saying here in verses 9. God revealed to us his will. But there's more to verses 8 and 9 than just, just kind of a fact. Right? When God delightfully and with good pleasure reveals the mystery of his will to his people, he means it to be more than factual. Not less than factual, but more than factual. And so kind of as we, as we lead into verses 8 and 9, what is really the purpose of the, the revelation of this mystery? Why does this statement in verses 8 and 9 about revelation of, of this mystery, why does this statement make it into one of the most dense and theologically high blessings of the New Testament? I think it's because contextually we realize that that through the revelation of God's mysterious plan, we get a glimpse into God's heart. In other words, revelation reveals the God of our salvation, but it also reveals the heart of the God of our salvation. And what is the heart of the God of our salvation? Why did the Father demand blood from His Son upon the cross so that we might have redemption through Him? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit executed the plan of redemption that, that we, His people, might be saved. Redemptive history, again, is not just a pile of facts. The Bible's not just a pile of facts. It's It's a revelation of God's will, and the revelation of God's will is a revelation of God's heart. And God's heart is not just for his people in general, but his heart is for me. Paul's referencing here not just redemptive history unfolded, but the heart of the God of redemptive history. And he means to apply it not just to people in general, but he uses first-person pronouns to do so. 
the, the entirety of verses seven through nine use these first-person pronouns in reference to redemption and revelation. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. And so when we ask these questions of this text and try to apply it to ourselves, you know, who has redemption? Well, Paul's saying we do. Whose trespasses are forgiven? Ours are. Who did God lavish his grace upon? Us. Who did God reveal these things to? Us. Why did God purpose from before the foundation of the world to send his son for us, for his church, for his people? The revelation of the heart of God, which is the mystery of this will that Paul's talking about, is a wonderfully soul-nourishing thing when we get it into first-person pronouns and not just kind of keep it out there as the church and Israel. Because when we put it in first-person pronouns and we, we realize the fact that, no, God purposed through Christ to save me from my sins... It gives a confidence to live knowing the heart of God to save me. In other words, what God has revealed about himself, what redemptive history reveals about the heart of God ought to give me confidence not in myself but in who God says that I am and what he says that I'm worth. In other words, what God, get to, God gets to determine who I am and what I'm worth. The what I'm worth question just being answered in verse seven, the blood of Christ. Other people don't get to tell me who I am and what I'm worth. I don't depend on other people to tell me that. I don't depend on my parents. I don't depend on my friends. I don't depend on my spouse. I don't depend on my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my fiance or anyone else. No one else gets to determine that except for God himself. I don't depend on my job to tell me what I'm worth. I don't depend on my tax filing status to tell me that. I don't depend on my tax bracket to tell me that either. What tells me who I am and what I'm worth is this book is God himself, redemptive history itself, the heart of God behind redemptive history, and the blood of Christ that was spilt for me. And again, I think one of the reasons we have so much trouble kind of finding that stability and resilience in the Christian life is because we let all of those other things around us, those things that change from day to day, we let those things define who we are and what we are worth instead of letting God do that. And when we let God do that and when we let the gospel define those things, that's when, we define, that's when we find the stability and resilience that we were perhaps looking for. Verses eight and nine really kind of get at the whole of redemptive history and the heart of God behind it, how God 
orchestrated from before the beginning of the, before the foundation of the earth to, to save for himself a people. Right, the mystery that has been revealed is God's heart for his people and his heart that has been for his people from the beginning of time. But this revelation is not totally and comprehensively defined by the past. Right, verse 10 also points us into the future, a redemptive future. God not only is the God of the past and how he saved his people in time past, but how he will save his people and what he does purpose to do in in, in the future. And God's future plan, according to verse 10, is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God's future plan is to unite, right, to sum up, to consummate all things in Christ. What Paul's talking about here, he uses this word only one other time in the New Testament, and it's found in Romans 13, 9. What does this word unite mean? Well, he uses it there, uh, basically translated as sum up, right? He says, uh, all the commandments of the Old Testament are summed up, are kind of united, are, are, are defined, are summed up by love your neighbor as yourself, That same word applied to this particular context means that all things, things in heaven and things on earth are going to be summed up. They're going to come to an end, a glorious end in and through Christ Jesus. Really, I think what Paul is getting at is he's saying that At the second coming or or when Christ returns, at the end of redemptive history, sin and the curse and all of its effects will be reversed by the Lord Jesus. Which is a blissful thought. Because how much of our day do we spend dealing with those things? How much time of our days do we spend dealing with pain, whether it be physical pain or emotional pain, either our pain or someone else's pain, right? How much of our day do we spend dealing with sin, whether it be our sin or whether it be someone else's sin or how much of the times of our day do do we spend sorting out some sort of disorder in creation around us? Right, the whole of our lives is touched by sin and the curse. And what the Spirit's saying here is that, that there will come a day when Christ will fix them. Right, that all of the threads of disorder that run in and through and beside my life will be united and summed up and ordered by Christ himself, who is the Lord of all creation, who is the Lord of heaven and earth. And so in the the middle of this blessing, while he's sitting in jail, Paul is not consumed by the present, but is emphasizing the necessity of living in the future. Our eyes are directed to the future, to the, to the horizon of Christ's return when all things will be united in him in heaven and in earth. 
right? This is the reality in which the Christian has to live. Unless you want to live a mopey and pouty life until your dying days, you have to live in the hope of the consummation of all things. We live not only, we do live in the present, but not only in the present. We live in the hope of the future. It's the only way to keep the pain in perspective. Keep it all in the moment, live in the moment, live in today and your pain will be bigger than you can ever think. Live in the future live in the consummation of all things and Christ himself puts it into perspective. And so I think the application of what what the apostle is getting at here and pointing us to the future hope that is for Christians that shall be accomplished by Christ is to not let the present or not let the present consume our lives not let our heartaches not let our pains not let not let our chaos not let our suffering consume the entirety of our lives but to instead augment the present with the hope of the future we have to live in the future we have to live with hope in Christ And so as we kind of set out to answer this question, you know, how do we have resilience? How do we find Christian resilience? How do we have stability in the Christian life? Well, we just looked at in verse 10, right? Living in the future as well as the presence. In verses eight and nine, we live in the confidence of God's heart for his people. In verse, in verse seven, we live with the license uh, of the freedom of forgiveness, And so as we walk back into our our Monday mornings tomorrow, how do we enjoy stability if the world falls apart? How do we enjoy stability if on Thursday afternoon the world falls apart? As we live in these spiritual blessings, the only way to enjoy stability in the Christian life is to be saturated by the person and work of Christ Jesus. Right? We have to soak in these theological realities, these Christological realities, to the point that every single thought is considered in relative, relative to these truths. And so, Heaven forbid the, Lord, the, the world does fall apart tomorrow morning, right? If you think a thought this week, uh, the, the kind of thought, you know, that perhaps most of us in the room, maybe all of us have had them, you know, the, the kind of thought that kind of immediately increases your heart rate by 10 beats per minute, you know, the kind of thought that just makes your stomach hurt, the kind of thought that, that perhaps brings with it, you know, a temptation to escape this reality, Right? Perhaps even a thought that just makes you mad at yourself for what you used to be. Right? How does this passage apply to that thought? I think we have to pause, we have to not go a step further until we ask ourselves, but what about Christ? Right? What does is, what is this blessing teach me about this particular moment? What is this blessing, how does this blessing apply to this particular thought that I have. What about Christ? 
What about my forgiveness? What about God's love for me in Christ? What about the future hope of glory? In other words, we have to bring the Lord Jesus into our heads before we wreck our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you, Father, for what is high and wonderful theology that tests the limits of our brains to even be able to understand, yet so glorious and wonderful. Father, we thank you that theology is, is, is again, not just a, a big, huge pile of facts, but it's It's meant to be applied, it's meant to be used, it's meant to be fed upon, it's meant to nurture uh, nurture us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that. And we pray, Father, that as we uh, attempt to live faithfully uh, this week, that you would be faithful to us and that your spirit would remind us of these wonderful things. We pray in Christ's name, amen.